Tales Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 2 opener, Points of Departure. So what is really cool about this episode is that it, um, it's often referred to as like the true pilot, quote-unquote. Um, I personally disagree, but it is a really nice launching point. Um, the beauty of it is that it catches you up to speed on everything very quickly. It doesn't resolve everything from the finale, um, and but manages to uh, put you into the headspace of every character very quickly. I mean, the, the Captain's Log, quote-unquote, by Ivanov at the beginning, is both a character-driven thing, where she's at her wit's end, and it's showing just how annoyed she is with everything that's going on. It established that Sinclair's gone, it's been a week since the uh, Season 1 finale, um, that, uh, that, that tensions are high, that a new person is coming to command the station, everything is, you know, and it, 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 it even, uh, helps, uh, deal with the Garibaldi situation by establishing that Garibaldi has been, uh, been, been in his critical condition for a while now, and he's not recovering, like, it's, um, it's both a character piece where you understand where her headspace is, everything that's going on with her, but also helps to exposit everything that's happened since the finale and to catch people up to speed if they haven't watched the finale because there's going to be a large influx of new people. Um, Bruce Boxleitner it was a popular uh, actor at the time, uh, and you know, I mean, Tron was really well known, so it. it it, it helps uh, it, it helps in that regard. So uh, the, obviously they're going to have a big influx of people. And I talked about last time why Sinclair left, that Michael O'Hare ended up having some um, medical issues in regards to mental health and had to depart the show. It's perfectly understandable. Um, and I, you know, I did state that it's not really a spoiler in the fact that he will be back in the fact that Sinclair is this character that will continue to have input in the story in this universe. Uh, James instituted uh, something I think I talked about before, which is called trap doors. If just in case I haven't, I'll reiterate. Uh, trap doors are the, the this concept that James had where you prepare for inevitable issues. Um, whenever you're dealing with something, especially a TV show, uh, but it, it's the same for comics, it's the same for uh, books, whatever, something is going to go wrong. Uh, you know, it's, Murph, it's Murphy's Law, you know, anything that can happen will happen. Uh, so there's a potential things can go wrong, whether it's an accident or a crewman having to leave, etc. Well, in regards to uh, Babylon 5, there were several actors who had to depart the show for various different reasons, whether they were contractual, just decided to quit, um, or, you know, couldn't get them back due to misscheduling, or, in Michael Harris' case, medical reasons. So, you, you, James instituted these trap doors, which allowed him to pivot the character to another area, allow them to still influence the world, allow them to still influence the story, but not show up on a regular basis, or at all, from then forwards, and, and introduce new characters whose storylines would be 
adjacent to the original plan. So a lot of Sinclair's overall arc and story gets moved to Sheridan. It's not exactly the same. There are several changes made to compensate for the new character, the new personality, because every character is within their own right, uh, their own person. But enough of the general ideas of the story that Jameis had got were able to be pivoted to Sheridan. It's a really smart move. I talked about this before, I believe, with Lita and Talia. Uh, and hilariously, there will be a situation later in the season in which the trapdoor will come in again in regards to Talia and Lita. So um, it, it, it's a really smart move on Jameis's behalf, and it really works. While uh, people going in for the first time may be a bit odd as to why the main character, uh, quote-unquote, even though B5 is very much an ensemble cast, your captain of station, your commander of the station just left and there's a new guy and we have to get accustomed to someone else after spending a full season getting to know and getting to like the previous person it can be a bit jarring but I think it is done the best way possible I mean they could have simply just recast Sinclair but instead JMS used to use this trapdoor method in my opinion that makes it much more believable uh, instead of just because recasting, in my opinion, often hurts my appreciation of a show because then it just feels odd. I've seen it work. I've also seen it done horribly, where I didn't really care for the new actor or actress or whatever. And whereas this allows for better world building. Sinclair, Jeffrey Sinclair, the, uh, uh, you know, missing 24 hours in his head, important to the Mimbari, survivor of the Battle of the Line he's a pretty important figure in the overall scheme of Babylon 5 and he still is even though Michael Hare is gone Sinclair will still be talked about for many many episodes to come his influence will still be felt and later in the series Sinclair himself will show back up so you have this better world building the fact that you have more characters out there characters that we the audience know and care about and are attached to meaning that if they ever show back up or have a reference to get we have that appreciation uh, and it feels more natural it builds a world uh, it may not have been the original intention but it ultimately works out for the writer's benefit um the the thing about this episode is that it feels better than season one. It feels a lot more confident. Um, I think the production team figured out some issues. Um, there's there's just a lot more confidence this go around. Well, there was a lot of confidence in season one. In certain episodes, you could feel that confidence lag, and that may be due to the fact that the actors weren't comfortable. They filmed a lot of episodes out of sequence. Um, and while you still have that in season two, by midway through season two, that is fixed and they shoot every episode correctly in order. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the situations just, it feels, it has a much faster pace. And I, it ultimately feels like we know what we're doing now. Everything's sort of set in stone because at this point we've done a lot of the setup. Season one is a season of all setup, as I mentioned before. Now we are in a season that is full of payoff as well as setup. It's not just all setup. And now that we have a world and we have characters that we care about and like and understand, now we can fully dive ahead first into the real story. 
Um, and I think that's what makes Babylon 5 special is just how long it takes and how unique it feels in the overall landscape of science fiction television and television in general. Um, now, one thing I do want to talk about is Sheridan himself. Um, some people prefer Sheridan. Some people prefer Sinclair. I like both. I absolutely love both. If I had to pick one, I would pick Sheridan. I do much prefer Sheridan in regards to the way he's acted. Um, Bruce Boxleitner, while, uh, you know, he's... He, the thing about Bruce Boxleitner is that he brings a sense of Southern charm, I think, to, to Sheridan. Sheridan is an instantly affable, likable, relatable character who has a very... Um, a very interesting thing about him and the fact that he looks far more sellable as a leading man. Bruce Boxleitner is undeniably very popular at the time, he was very handsome for the time, and he very much looks like your classic square-jawed, two-fisted hero. But Sheridan is a thinker, as well as, as, well as he's a fighter. Uh, we see that in the fact that he's the son of a diplomat. We see that, you know, he went to Tibet and visited the Dalai Lama and has a lot of advice and he is well read. And he even deals with the threat of the episode uh, by analyzing what was told to him. Now, he's much more uh, offensive in, uh, in sort of standoffish than S Sinclair. Stan Sinclair was much more the consummate ambassador he was a he was in all intents of terms what a politician should be he was a uh righteous man a man of conviction a man who was right who was morally right on many many things and he was willing to lay his foot down when necessary but he would he would want the same time he'd raise his voice he would extend his hand out in friendship it's the wonder woman thing of uh do not raise your arm in hostility before you first extended your hand in friendship um so the that entire situation in regards to sinclair gives him a much more diplomatic uh feel to him and that will be significant to when his arc goes now that he is quote-unquote left the show but sinclair himself will still be an important presence sheridan is much more the military commander um he is boots on the ground he's just an ordinary guy um and i think a lot of that is not only bruce boxleitner's performance but i think it may have been an intentional choice by jms whereas the first season had a restaurant that felt very um, upper class, very rich style restaurant. Uh, now we have a almost jazz bar esque restaurant that feels a bit more commonplace, a bit more ordinary bar um, style in uh, in the, as a lounge. And Sheridan and and Ivanova are, are have a good friendship, which in of itself feels a bit more natural. Um, than Garibaldi and Sinclair ever did, but that is in regards to the actors having chemistry. Uh, and of course, there was behind the stuff, stuff reasons why Garibaldi's actor Jerry Doyle did not get a whole uh, along well with Sinclair's actor Michael O'Hare. Um, but I think that is why uh, Sheridan feels a bit more down to earth. He's just ordinary guy. 
And I think that's what's likable about him. And I mean, even that good luck charm that he has where he has to say this speech by, you know, Abraham Lincoln, which establishes the one of the major themes of the series establishes the uh the origination of the last best hope for peace thing as well as establishes a bit of sheridan's moral philosophy as well as him as a person that that sort of good luck charm thing that he has to do it's not something that's optional for him even if nobody's there he has to do it that is that feels very 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 relatable even though i'm not particularly superstitious i even have you know my own things that i do just out of ritualistic habit uh, everybody's got those kind of things um you know it's not something that makes much sense it's not something that you really honestly think about but it's something that you do because it makes you feel a bit more comfortable uh, and I think that's why Sheridan ultimately wins out for me in the entire Which Do You Prefer? Because he feels a lot more relatable. Sinclair is a bit more stuffy, but he was a good person and a very good leader. Uh, and ultimately, if you, had, if you wanted someone to diplomatically uh, sort of deal with the situation, you would hire Sinclair. If you want someone to get the job done, you get Sheridan. And they're both incredibly good people and incredibly great characters and characters that I would more than willingly follow as my leader in a real-life situation. But Sheridan is the kind of guy that you go out and have some coffee with. You know, you just sit down and have a drink with and enjoy your chat. Uh, Sinclair is more of your work friend, I think is the best way to put it. Um, the thread of this episode isn't all that interesting. It's about the, this true, this, this ship called the Trugati, um, which, uh, was this, uh, was this rogue ship that broke away from the Membari warrior cast as a result of the surrender at the Battle of the Line. Um, and it's mainly establishing, uh, there to establish, establish and reestablish some, uh, points about the Earth-Membari War. Uh, and is to show the way Sheridan reacts with the Mimbari. Uh, every scene in which he is in with a Mimbari, there's a tension there. He himself doesn't have a whole lot of uh, tension towards them. He is not a racist person. However, they despise him. They even gave him the name Starkiller because he had the audacity to win a fight. As we well know, they were on a holy war. They wanted vengeance for the death of Dukat. And they were going out and killing survivors. And he figured out a way around their advanced tech. They had stealth tech that prevented them from being able to target them. They outclassed them in every situation. So he lit out a fake distress signal, had mined a couple of asteroids in the area, and then detonated them. You don't need to target something if you, if you just explode the general area. You know, doesn't really matter much after that. You know, uh, collateral damage. It works in his favor, and he had the audacity to destroy their flagship. He won, and they can't take it because they, as far as they were concerned, they were righteous and they were fighting a holy war and they wanted to exterminate the human race. And how dare he? How dare he have the audacity to win? As he said, it was the only damn victory we had in that war, and I'm not about to apologize for it. Um, it's it's a situation where the Mimbari are full of hypocrisy. They wanted to do horrible, despicable things. And by Sheridan using dirty tactics to win against in their own game against him, they hate him for it. By using their own roles against them. Um, it, 
it's a it's a fantastic the way we we use that but the true Gandhi itself isn't all that interesting um they wanted to be martyrs to unite a new Earthman Bari war. There's already enough tension for that to probably happen sometime in the future. Um, and because the warrior cast already has issues, we do find out about everything that was going on with, uh, with some other aspects of the Earthman Bari war. We find out why they surrendered and we find out some, uh, some aspects of the, from the Membari perspective, what was going on, why they took, uh, Sinclair on board that Membari souls are being born in human bodies now however you want to read that is up to you um, a lot of people are adverse to religion in science fiction and I honestly don't know why religion is a big part of human society and it would make sense that it would be a big part of alien cultures as well and it's still a big part of alien uh, of a big part of human culture in the B5 universe as well and it would make sense that it would still be that way yes uh, gradually as the world has gone on it has become a bit more vocally anti-religion but there are still people who uh, who are followers of religion for instance I am Christian I'm not going to you know bang down your door and say convert I'm not that kind of a Christian however I have my own personal belief I believe in a higher power a god the Christian god it just so happens to be and I'm not really concerned what other people think i'm it's my opinion and i'm going to live with that and you're going to live with yourself i don't really care um and so the membari calling it souls were being born or the membari souls were being born in human bodies it's up to you to interpret how that is if for, uh, for all you know it is couched in their own beliefs in their own religion for instance they believe that the universe may manifest that they are constantly in a cycle of rebirth um is that true? We don't know. Um, and even if we look at it scientifically and go, probably not. Well, then maybe they're wrong about the souls. There's no, there's no saying that it can't be true in some, some other way. Oftentimes you can marry science and religion by using explanations because uh, different interpretations to, to explain things. Religion is all about interpretation and about personal faith. There is no set doctrine. There is no, um, you know, this is the correct way to go about things. It's all about personal interpretation. Uh, and so there's lots of ways to explain it. And we will get a future explanation that for you people who are not interested as much in religion as I am, would it will enjoy far more. However, it is with it of itself interesting enough because it's it's a bit of thing that is tied inherently to their own religion. Uh, and how we interpret that is up to us and up to them. Um, it also makes perfect sense why they're keeping this a secret because this is the um, this is the entire situation of of Watchmen, you know, what, do you tell people that peace is a lie? You know, uh, the, because the peace, uh, the peace can be shattered if they know the truth. Um, if, if you don't, if you lie to them, they will be complacent. Um, and it, it, but if you tell them it could shatter their entire worldview and start something worse. So it's, it's, it's a problem either way, no matter what you do, you're damned. So you got to figure out a way around it. And so they just keep the truth from everyone. It makes perfect sense. Now it's going to hurt them in the long run, certainly. And anybody with a brain can see that. 
but what else choice do they have? You know, it, it is a situation where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, now, the other thing I want to talk about is uh, the introduction of this character. You probably didn't notice him in this episode because he get, he's on screen for all of about a minute, probably less. His name is Warren Kaffer. He's this pilot, this uh, Star Fury pilot that's sitting on a bench and he's talking to a hologram of his girlfriend. And then he uh, then he gets into Star Fury and that's the last we see of him. Um, he's not really all that interesting. And to be honest, he's the most boring character of all time in this series. The thing about Warren Kaffer is that JMS never wanted the character to exist. It was studio mandated. They said, we want a Han Solo type character, a Starbucks type character, a hotshot pilot that's, uh, that, that will, uh, you know, win the hearts of people and, uh, be sarcastic and fun. And that just doesn't fit the tone of Babylon 5. So he managed to create a young, naive, hotshot pilot who's, uh, wet behind the ears and trying to get a feel for things and isn't all that interesting. And, the character of Warren Kaffer is important to a one singular plot thread in a handful of episodes, and eventually he'll disappear. There are many reasons why he disappears, um, most of it plot-related, so I won't spoil it, but that is, you know, as soon as JMS could get rid of him, he got rid of him, because there was no need for him. It was a studio mandate, and having, you know, loving comic books and loving uh, science fiction television and uh, sort of genre fiction and speculative fiction, uh, I see often uh, studio or boss or manager or executive or editorial interference all the time. And more often than not, it hurts a project. Sometimes it actually aids a project, but that is so rare and it, it upsets me to see sometimes when creatives are, are pigeonholed into doing something that they never wanted to do simply because it will get views and it will do something interesting or it will shock people instead of being able to be allowed to tell the story they want to tell. I don't really have much else to say about this episode. I think it's a really good episode. I think it's a fantastic start to the season. It's a great introduction to Sheridan as a character. Uh, it really helps further Ivanova's arc, um, but I don't think uh, it's a good quote-unquote starting point, a second pilot, if you were. A lot of people, I know several people actually, that have never watched season one start with season two. They were told to always start with season two, and I can't understand that because there's so much in this episode that depends on knowledge of season one. And while certainly you can watch it, and it was designed to have enough exposition to watch it as a standalone thing and to catch you up to speed. I don't think that that what I find interesting, the entire Mimbari soul situation uh, and the differences between Sheridan and Sinclair and Ivanova being at Wood's End, I don't think any of that would be really all that interesting to a new viewer. I honestly don't know because I watched From the Gathering onwards my first watch through. Obviously, I'm not old enough to have watched this when it was airing. So I don't know what that's like. I do know some people have done that. Some people I know personally. Uh, and it boggles my mind and I just can't understand it. But it was their choice. Uh, so you know, power to them, but I just don't understand how you can do that. But I suppose some people have made it work. 
I mean, I don't understand how people can skip season five either, personally, um, because there's just so much uh, resolution in that season. But some people don't like it, which is fair enough. Whatever. Uh, some people have different opinions. I see it all the time. We're all entitled to our own opinions. I just don't happen to agree with the, that the idea that Points of Departure is a good starting point in a second pilot for Babylon 5, because Season 1, and specifically The Gathering, is where you should start. Because uh, there's so much setup and so much growing as a show, uh, but also establishing the character that is so important the reason why I love Babylon 5 so much is because I love these characters. And without the establishment of the, these characters in this world, I wouldn't give a damn about everything that happened in this episode. The revelation of why they, the Membari surrendered to the Battle of the Line wouldn't mean anything if I didn't care about all these characters. The threat to Delin's life or Lanier's life uh, when the crew of the Trigadi come there and are trying to uh, go after them because they blame them for the surrender and then later, you know, killing the, uh, the crewman killing himself so that he can frame Sheridan and create a martyr to begin a new war. Um, that wouldn't mean anything to me if I had not watched the first season because I wouldn't know who the Membari were, who Delin was, why is she in a cocoon, who's Lanier, why are they weirdly spiritual, uh, what is the significance of this war, what do they mean about a surrender that happened 10 years ago that not everybody was told about. It wouldn't make any sense. And while there's enough explanation to, er, in exposition, to, in dialogue to explain it, having stuff exposited to you often is uh is a deadening experience compared to experiencing it which is why i think the gathering and the uh first season are required viewing personal opinion but anyway i shall see you next week uh for the episode revelations see you then bye <laughs>